Naval College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Wednesday afternoon, January 12, 1972, Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, Part 2, concluding the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls and beginning the study of archaeology and the early Christian church. Now, the point where we stopped was question 161, and Mr. Nari, you asked a question about that a couple minutes ago. 161, the Dead Sea Isaiah Scroll has no break between Isaiah chapters 39 and 40. What is the bearing of this fact on the theory of two or more authors of the book of Isaiah? <coughs> now you realize that um, proper Jewish and Christian belief has always held that Isaiah wrote the entire book of Isaiah. But there is a modern theory which is grounded in rationalistic objections to the supernatural that um, from chapter 40 to the end was written by somebody else called the Second Isaiah. My telephone rang one day and a lady's voice came over the line and said, what's all this stuff about the Second Isaiah? I said, what stuff about the second Isaiah? She said, it's in this quarterly they gave me for my high school class. I said, well, what do you want to know about it? I said, why do they call him the second Isaiah? I said, you asking me? Yeah. All right. They don't know what his real name was. Why don't they know what his real name was? I said, in my opinion, because he never lived. <laughs> And uh, you should realize that as far as actual evidence goes, there is no evidence that anyone other than Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote any part of the book of Isaiah. And if any of you are dubious about that, you come see me and I'll refer you to substantial literature that will handle that for you on a very satisfactory basis. Now, the modern theory was promoted by... Um, oh, um, a Scotchman named George Adam Smith, I believe, who gave lectures uh, which were later circulated over the world, who held that from chapter 40 on, it was written by somebody else. And later there was a German writer named Doom, D-U-H-M, who held there was a third Isaiah. That the second Isaiah wrote it up to about chapter um, 59, and then 60 to the end, maybe, or a few at the end there, written by a third Isaiah. You should realize both of these are purely hypothetical characters. There's no external evidence that either one of them ever existed. And the reason that people object to the whole book having been written by one author is because the so-called second part, starting with chapter 40, obviously, very obviously, reflects conditions 150 years after the time of the real Isaiah and during and at the end of the Babylonian captivity, which hadn't even started yet in Isaiah's day. Now, stop and think. Isaiah lived um, in the end of the 700s B.C., last <coughs> part of the 700s. And uh, the Babylonian captivity ended in 539, depending on which part of it you're talking about. <coughs> so let's say a good 150 years after Isaiah's time. And yet this 
second part, these later chapters, very clearly, and nobody can deny it, describe and picture scenes that reflect the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. It is a remarkable fact, however, that uh, while the human scene is that of Babylon, the natural scenery, the brooks and the hills and the waterfalls and all these things in the so-called second part of Isaiah are those of Palestine. This is rather remarkable. The, uh, the stage setting is that of Palestine, but the human scene is that of Babylonia, which doesn't have any books and waterfalls. It's a pancake flat alluvial plain. Now then, uh, if you believe in, if you have a supernaturalistic religious epistemology, in other words, if you believe there can be such a thing as real predictive prophecy, and that God is transcending above time, and therefore the future is equally real to God with the present and the past, then that God could predict the future, and he could predict this through one of his servants, such as the prophet Isaiah. But if a person doesn't believe this and thinks that the prophets were intellectuals and thinkers, something like the Greek philosophers who read the signs and doped it out, in that case, who could possibly figure out things 150 years in advance? Uh, Mr. Thompson, who's going to be the next president of the United States after Nixon? Muskie, Humphrey, Nixon again, uh, George Wallace, or who? Mr. Beatty? Who? Well, I wonder. Now, you see, the Gallup poll guessed wrong about Adlai Stevenson. They predicted that he was elected and uh, even reported this, and turned out it was Eisenhower. And a person might be a shrewd analyst of current trends and figure out what will probably happen in five years. 150 years? Impossible. The only way this could be would be by divine revelation. And if you don't believe in that, then you are forced to say what these critics say. It was written after the things happened. Now, in particular, at the end of chapter 44 of Isaiah and the beginning of chapter 45, it predicts not only the return from the captivity, but that Cyrus will turn the green light on and set the captives free, naming his name and stating this is a proof that God knows the end from the beginning. He can name this man by name. Now then, uh, modern critics who are um, strongly influenced by a rationalistic slant say fiddlesticks and apple sauces couldn't have been written until Cyrus was already a character in the news. And therefore, it was written after it had begun to happen, and therefore it must have been written by the second Isaiah. Over against this, just to give you a very quickie rundown on this, the New Testament cites all parts of the book of Isaiah as written by Isaiah. <clears throat> you can make quite a tabulation of quotes and allusions, thank you, <clears throat> to Isaiah from all parts of this event. Well, he was peddling second-hand thoughts, probably. But uh, all parts, and Dr. Edward J. Young, the late Edward J. Young of Westminster Seminary, in his little book, Who Wrote Isaiah? A uh, popular layman's type book, but 
points out that the New Testament does not merely quote Isaiah the book, but Isaiah the man, in his quotes from the second part. Isaiah waxes bold and says, followed by a quote from the second part of Isaiah. Therefore, it isn't merely a way of citing a scripture reference to say it's found in the book of the prophet Isaiah. He refers to the man Isaiah, you see. And this is quite convincing if you believe the New Testament to be the word of God. Now, these critics do not believe this, and it is because of their anti-supernaturalist bias or their bias in favor of a an anti-miraculous or rationalistic and naturalistic view of things, and therefore they claim there were two Isaiahs. And this is widely held at the present day. You can't run around in the America of the 1970s without bumping into this. But just remember, the roots of this are not definite data in the book of Isaiah, except these things that I mentioned to you, but because of a view that holds that real predictive prophecy cannot be. Now, the discovery of this Dead Sea manuscript, which is pictured in your book here, on page 150, that's the one, and it's opened here at uh, chapter 40. I believe chapter 40 begins here at the bottom of that uh, middle to left-hand column there, in the, next to the last line there. Or maybe it is the last line. Anyway, um, the significant thing here is that this manuscript, dated from before the time of Christ, possibly uh, 50 to 100 years before, has no break between what is today called the first part of Isaiah and the second part, or between chapter 39 and chapter 40. You realize the Bible was not divided into chapters until about 500 years ago. This was a printer's device for making it easy to find a place. But it has no break there. Now that, of course, doesn't prove that one author wrote the whole thing. But if there were a break there, suppose there were uh, several lines left blank, or he started chapter 40 on the next column and left that one blank, this might be held to indicate that the scribe that did it believed that there were two authors. But the fact that it's all run together like that certainly seems to indicate that he didn't have any such notion in his head and that uh, he believed, as people always have, that uh, it was by one author. This was unchallenged until late in the Middle Ages, in the, about the year 1200, a Jewish scholar with the jaw-cracking name of Moses ben Abraham ibn Gekatila, I believe that's correct, a Jewish writer, not a Christian, wrote a piece about it and claimed that the second part was written after the Babylonian captivity, and Nobody paid any attention to him, and it wasn't until fairly recent times that this theory became <coughs> prominent and widely held at all. Now, the Dead Sea Manuscript doesn't settle this controversy. On the other hand, what it does show, as far as it shows anything, is perfectly compatible with the traditional and orthodox view about Isaiah, and it shows nothing that's in any way contrary to this. So, as far as anybody can take any comfort out of this, why, we have the right to the comfort. Now, Mr. Neri, does that answer your question about this? All right. I had a young lady in the Bible 102 course, and she read Young's book, uh, Who Wrote Isaiah, and wrote a very fine paper on it. It was A, it was top A, and no doubt about it. And um, I marked it so, and she had a footnote at the end. I don't see why you asked me to read this book. It never crossed my head to question that Isaiah wrote the whole book of Isaiah. And a lady member of a Methodist church. 
So I thought, well, I ought to tell you something. So I wrote underneath there, I'm glad to know that you believe in the Word of God as the Christian should, but uh, you cannot run around in America today without bumping into this belief. And unless you know something about it, you're at the mercy of people who are promoting unbelief and who will give you a distorted idea of this and will tell you that all scholars are agreed and other such little sticks as that. And therefore, uh, even though we believe in the Word of God and it doesn't cross our head to question it, it is necessary for us to know how other people are questioning it today and how this can be answered. It's uh, not a value for some spiritual life in that, maybe, but there's a value for you to be. We're told in the Bible to be able to give an answer for the faith that is in us, anybody that questions it. If you don't know what modern unbelief is, you can't give an answer to it and... Uh, you know, we're going to be called fools for Christ's sake, but if we're going to be called fools, let's make the most of it and have something really to be called fools for. See? Now then, the next one, 162, how has the Hebrew text of Isaiah 21.8 been cleared by the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah? Now, first of all, we'll read this text, and this is a text that has always baffled people in the Ordinary uh, 2128. Wait a minute. Cannot be right. What? 2128. All right, let's fix that right away. Was that wrong in Blake Box Book 2? Yeah. Oh, that's what, um, you see? When you follow other people, you get. Wait a minute. 149. Right. 21.8 And he cried, A lion, my lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and am set in my ward whole night. And so on. Now, um, he cried, A lion. What does that mean in that verse? Mr. Brown, does that uh, convey an uh, intelligible meaning to you? It doesn't, all right? Uh, I don't think that uh, our faith requires us to believe that something has a meaning when we can't see that it has any meaning at all. And the Isaiah text of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls text of Isaiah has a slightly variant reading here, which uh, reads, um, instead of a lion, uh, we put in different vowels with the same Hebrew consonants, and it will read... Uh, he who saw, he who saw, instead of a lion, so at the bottom of page 149, he who saw cried, my lord, and this restores an intelligible meaning to it. This is one of the very few places where the Dead Sea Scrolls have led to a uh, correction of the text of the Hebrew Old Testament that has really done something to help us. Now that's that one about the lion. The next one, Isaiah 49.12, this is in the so-called second part of Isaiah, of course. The land of Sinai, in the King James Version. This has often been held to be the only reference in the Bible to the great country of China. And Sinai only means China, all right, but the Hebrew word here is um, in dispute. Land of Sinai, and then Blakeoff tells us that... Um, <clears throat> this uh, should be read as shown by the Dead Sea Scrolls, Syene, S-Y-E-N-E. That's only a slight change in spelling and pronunciation, but if you take the Dead Sea Scroll as correct, 
not to refer to China, but uh, to Yeb or Saini. This was um, Elephantine in Upper Egypt, where there was a community of Jews and where some manuscripts, as you know, have been found. All right, that's that one. Now then, um, 964, what conclusion does Blakelock draw as to what the Dead Sea Isaiah scroll has accomplished for biblical studies? Page 150, the conclusion is the Isaiah scroll by and large demonstrates the astonishing accuracy of the text which has been transmitted to us. Now you realize that before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest surviving manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament were from the 9th century A.D. The books were older, but uh, there were copies of copies of copies. And the oldest surviving manuscripts were in libraries and monasteries in Europe and the Near East. And from the 800s toward the year 900 A.D., here are the Dead Sea Scrolls from around 100 B.C. So this has put us back pretty nearly a thousand years. The Dead Sea Manuscript of Isaiah is almost, if not quite, a thousand years older than the oldest previously known manuscript. And uh, it, is, um, it is independent, therefore, of the copying and recopying that took place in the Near East and later in Europe during that thousand years. What we had before the Dead Sea Scrolls is the so-called MT, or Masoretic Text. This is the text as edited by the Jewish rabbis after the time of Christ, and a little vowel points put in to indicate the pronunciation, and uh, these Masoretes, these Jewish scholars, um, uh, compared manuscripts, and where there was a difference between them, they exercised a critical judgment as to which they held to be correct. And uh, so this results in the edited Masoretic text of the Old Testament, which was all we had, uh, except for the Septuagint and Samaritan reading, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Now then, here comes this Dead Sea Manuscript of Isaiah, found in 1947, and when compared with the Masoretic text of Isaiah from that was previously known, it's almost letter for letter identical. The differences are so slight that Blakelock can point out the ones that have any significance in just a couple of paragraphs here, and that's it. And this indicates the amazing accuracy with which the copying and recopying was done. It is said that um, the Jews were so strict about this that uh, they knew the number of letters, number of consonants in each biblical book. And if a scribe was making a new copy, they counted it when he got through, and if he had two errors, they let him find out where they were and correct them, and if there were more than two, he'd throw the thing away and do it over again. This would be a dandy rule for Geneva's English department to adopt on uh, themes and term papers. Two mistakes and out it goes. You do it over. <laughs> but you see what extreme accuracy. Now the Jews were not famous for living according to it, but they certainly were famous for uh, painstaking and assiduous attention to the actual letter of Scripture. And this greatly increases, therefore, our confidence in the the reliability of the Bible as we have it and have had it. The Isaiah scroll discovered in Qumran not only doesn't upset any apple carts, it proves to us that the apple cart we already had was a dandy good one. And uh, you can have confidence in it. It's an honestly transmitted and accurately transmitted and honestly transmitted book. Now then, uh, 
165. How is a Qumran manuscript of Genesis cleared up the problem about how many Israelites entered Egypt in the time of Jacob? This has uh, always been a thorny problem, even though perhaps not very important. But uh, how many Israelites? And Genesis says, I believe, 70. All right? And Stephen, in his dying speech, said 75. And the scholars have labored around among these figures and figured, do you count Joseph or not? He was already in Egypt. Do you count Joseph's two sons? Uh, do you count only the men or do you count part of the women? And so forth. To try to reconcile Stephen's 75 with the 70. Now then, here is his Qumran manuscript of Genesis, uh, which says 75, the famous Stephen. It was also common for some people to say, well, Stephen goofed. Uh, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, but this didn't apply to figures. So some people said. However, it turns out Stephen didn't do it. He was a student of Scripture, and let me tell you, the Jews knew their Bible. You couldn't uh, mix them up on a little thing like this. And uh, so uh, this manuscript confirms the 75 given in the book of Acts, and probably, therefore, this is more authentic than the 70 given in the traditional manuscripts of Genesis, that were known before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Now, another one, 166, what has the Qumran manuscript shown as to the meaning of the poor in spirit as used by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, this manuscript, not a biblical text, but one of the books of their order, shows that this was used as the opposite of the hard-hearted or stubborn. Uh, there are people today who take all these references to the poor and needy in the Bible and interpret them as if they referred to economics. Now, if you're a pre-ministerial student going to Geneva, you might think, obviously, that's the correct meaning, the poor and needy. But uh, <laughs> uh, it isn't. You check out how this term is used. The poor are not contrasted with the rich, as they would be if it were an economic distinction. The poor are contrasted with the proud in the Psalms, for example, and they're contrasted with the wicked. And you check it out in the Psalms and Proverbs, where these expressions frequently occur, the poor and the needy are the true people of God who suffer reproach and persecution and hardship for his name. There is no direct reference to economics in this, although it might be indirectly included, of course. But you check out what a thing means by what it is contrasted with. And if the poor is contrasted with the proud and the wicked, it refers to a spiritual characteristic, not to a financial one, primarily. Now then, this um, uh, Qumran manuscript shows that this was used, the poor was used in the, as the opposite of the, let's say, the hard-hearted or the proud, something like this. And uh, therefore, it's equivalent approximately to what we would mean by the meek or the humble, describing the true and faithful people of God. Now, what, if any, is the value of the biblical commentary found among the Dead Sea writings for serious study of the Word of God? Which of you would like to make a short speech on that? Well, Mr. Betty, uh, this helps you to understand Scripture better to read. Now, we're not talking about the text of the Bible, but commentary. They are filled with um, 
fantastic, allegorical, and um, oh, um, curious interpretation. Uh, fantastic, allegorical, and uh, what's the other word he uses here? Uh, um, symbolic and mystical interpretation. I mentioned one to you that was not peculiar to Qumran, but to another movement among the Jews, the false messiah appeared, and they said, let's see if he can judge by smell, because it predicted he could not judge after the hearing of his eyes, or the ears or the sight of his eyes, and so forth. This is, you see, external judgment contrasted with righteous judgment. But these dumb bunny Jews said that he can't judge by his ears or his eyes, he must be done by his nose. So they're going to bring the bottle of ammonia and eau de cologne and so forth and see if he can tell which is which and prove whether he's a messiah or not. Well, that's childish and silly. It was, it was done, though. I mean, I'm not making this up. They, they, they did this. And an uh, allegorical interpretation of historical narratives and ordinary prophecies in the Bible are almost sure to be wrong. The Bible contains some allegories. But uh, to put an allegorical interpretation upon a historical narrative, say that, uh, well, for instance, Genesis chapters 1 to 3 is an allegory rather than an account of acts of God, this leads you far afield. And furthermore, it opens the door wide to all sorts of fanciful imagination, and there's no test for it. If you can make allegories, I can too. And who's to decide which one is right? They're going to have a contest here and who can devise the most um, fantastic possible interpretation. I'll give you an example of this from one of my students in China. Uh, this was a two-year Bible training course, something like Moody Bible Institute that I taught in. And uh, we had 100 students for a while. And the graduating class led the chapel devotions for the last uh, few weeks of, the, of their term. Uh, when they were just to graduate, they took a turn at it. And um, a young fellow there was conducting devotions, and wait, there was a time limit, and a bell would ring, and if he didn't sit down, ring again three minutes, and so on, until he finally did. But um, he was dealing with this incident from the uh, Book of Kings, I believe, where the sons of the prophets in the time of Elisha were out uh, building themselves a new uh, dormitory with the... Uh, their own efforts, and um, Elisha the prophet was supervising this and helping with it, and one of them collected a uh, apron full of wild gourd, which he shredded into a big kettle to make a vegetable soup. And um, so they cooked it, and when they started to eat it, one of them said, Oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. They recognized it was poison and not edible. And Elisha said, Bring meal, and flour, sprinkled it in, and uh, this somehow neutralized it. I think this is a miracle. But anyway, uh, they ate the soup and no harm. This fellow said, This incident has seven distinct meanings, of which I will now speak. And the first is the literal meaning. This is entirely unimportant. We'll pass that from by. <laughs> Incidentally, that's the only one that has any real meaning or value at all. A literal meaning, the power of God to work a miracle to save his two servants from that's from the soup. Well, he, he got through two or three of these fancy meanings. He said, this kettle that was being cooked in stands for the world. And the soup in there stands for the human race. And the poison stands for sin. And um, 
And the fact that his death in the pot stands for the fact that the wages of sin is death. And the prophet said, bring meal, this stands for the gospel of Christ, which is the remedy for sin. And uh, it says he put it in, in English, but in Chinese the verb is he sprinkled it in all around. And this means the gospel wasn't only to be preached in Jerusalem, but also in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. By this time the bell rang. <laughs> he said there are still three more meanings quite distinct of this incident. I haven't time for them, however, we'll have to sit down. So he never finished them now. Somebody like, well, myself and other missionaries there that preached the Bible straightforwardly in its um, true, uh, plain, historical meaning were considered unspiritual. Somebody that could dish out this uh, fancy stuff, this thing, oh, this is really deep spiritual understanding of the Word of God. This man understands the deep things of God. My answer to this is I just as do not know so much as to know so much that ain't so. <laughs> Now, this kind of thing was frequent in the Qumran commentaries. Their texts of the Bible books are one thing. Parts of every Old Testament book except Esther have been found, and some practically complete, including Isaiah. These are of value to us. Their commentaries are only of value to us in uh, illustrating uh, what kind of thinking these people did. Almost childish in their in their fantastic interpretations of scripture along with their earnest zeal for a clean and good life and so forth but almost fantastic in this the Jews in Jerusalem are bad enough and these people were X squared and Y cubed more so out there off the edge of the Qumran desert therefore these writings like their Habakkuk commentary are of no value whatever to us for understanding the word of God except they illustrate them what you can do when you start to go off on a tangent somewhere. This they, this they illustrate. All right, now any more questions about the Dead Sea Scrolls before we bury them? Okay, before we proceed to the question of the early church, I would like to take up the interesting matter of when we will have the final in this course. Now, there are seven possible interpretations of this. <laughs> The Bible 101 final is, uh, incidentally, the dean expects people to hold exams on the day they're scheduled for it, but I think when a class is as small as this, it really doesn't uh, disturb anything if we have it on a different day. Bible 101 will be Friday the 21st, week from this Friday, at uh, 1 p.m. This will give us um, Friday this week, the uh, 14th, and two days next week. We have three more days to go. We can, I think, finish Blakelock's book and maybe I can give you a little something extra on the great New Testament manuscript. Uh, that's one possibility. Uh, if not that, we could have it at some different time. The Bible 201 exam, sophomore Bible course, is on the following Monday. You taking that? Uh, that rules you out. All right, um, Anybody got a suggestion or a preference? Mr. Neri. Monday? That's what I just mentioned. Three o'clock. You have a different time, Monday. Um, this runs into complications, though, unless we would have it at a time that uh, is singled out for some one course. Humanities 101. How many of you taken that? Nobody. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's three members of class in our here. Did all of you get page 17 and 18 last time? 
Style to have this on the same afternoon as the Bible 201 exam? No. You don't think it would? No. You think you could do justice to this and uh, get out both? Well, how about. Um, hmm? When's Greek? Yeah, morning, huh? It's morning, though, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Tuesday. Wednesday. All right with me. Well, I'm uh, not supposed to do this. It's against the laws of the Medes and the Persians. One o'clock. All right with me. I'd be right there anyhow in the chapel. You could sit right there in the front row of the chapel and take it. Well, uh, is there any of you that couldn't take it then? One o'clock Friday afternoon, March twenty-first. Hmm? Humanities two o one. Just a minute. That's on the following Wednesday, January twenty-fifth. All right. Well, let's put it for Friday afternoon at one o'clock. And if there's somebody in the class can't take it, then I'll let them take it later at George Mann. That work out. One o'clock. One o'clock. And uh, the place, write it down. You'll have it in the front row of the chapel. Right under the podium down there at the front. 21st, week from Friday. You got 10 days yet. All right. Now then, chapter 11 here Archaeology and the Early Church. And it's starting with 168. Paul's reaction to what he would see in approaching Rome. You know, uh, Blakelock doesn't mention this, I don't think, but it says in the Bible, uh, after the shipwreck, they got on land again and uh, went up the length of Italy from the southern ship, and they approached a place called the Three Taverns, which when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. <laughs> now, you should realize that this does not mean... <laughs> <laughs> this does not mean what we mean by taverns. Three hotels, let's say the triple motel. It was a crossroads where uh, people would uh, often meet and so forth. And the Christians from Rome came out as far as this point, I believe, to they had heard that he was coming and came out to welcome him. And there's no reference to what taverns are famous for today, like Duffy's Taverns, for example. No connection whatsoever. All right, now, Paul approached Rome, I believe, the Appian Way, a famous highway. It's still there today. And um, he would um, see on every hand, as he had in Athens, the evidences of a false religion. Uh, Romans didn't believe it very hard anymore, except the more ignorant type of them, but uh, there it was. What would Paul's reaction to this be? As he, what was his reaction at Athens? The idolatry of the city. Mr. Brown. Yeah, this uh, really uh, stirred him up. He was disturbed by this. Now, you know, we keep our cool too much sometimes. You see something wrong and false, 
Maybe this ought to make us a little bit mad and, and stir us up. Maybe we oughtn't to be so placid and in the face of the unbelief and wickedness and wrongdoing of our day. And when Paul saw something like this, it did something to him. The spirit was stirred within it. Not stirred with approval, but stirred with indignation against what he saw. Now, he would see it certainly at Rome. Now, 169, a poem by Matthew Arnold. I had a big search in the library to find uh, the complete poem by Matthew Arnold, but found it after really digging for it. Matthew Arnold was a poet of the Victorian era in England. Was Matthew Arnold an evangelical Christian? Well, I'm afraid not. I'm afraid he was considerably influenced by modern thought. But anyhow, this poem is worth quoting. And in this poem, which Blakelock gives only, I believe, a, a little fragment of here, um, this is which, 169 here, on that hard pagan world disgust and secret loathing self. Let me give you the rest of the stanza. This describes, have you heard this before? Have I told you this before? I give this in many classes. I've spoken this in chapel. Uh, a Roman nobleman. The point of this poem is the ennui, or boredom with life, that was characteristic of that period of Roman history. Weariness of life. Absolute boredom. In which uh, people became cynical and pessimistic and even despairing and perhaps suicidal. And he pictures a Roman nobleman in Rome. This man has got it made. He's got everything. He's got money. He lives in a fine marble mansion with about 20 slaves to do everything for him. He's got friends. He's got rank. He's a member of the Senate. Uh, you see, according to worldly standards, he's got it made. And yet he is deeply unsatisfied and unhappy. Life is without real meaning and satisfaction to him, and his main problem is how to kill time. Now, time kills us, but his problem is how to kill time. And uh, Matthew Arnold uh, very, uh, oh, uh, adroitly pictures the mood of the Roman Empire of that period in this statement about this man. On that hard pagan world, disgust and secret loathing fell. Deep weariness and sated lust made human life a hell. In his cool hall with haggard eyes, the Roman noble lay. He rode abroad in furious guise along the Appian Way. He bade a feast, drank fierce and fast, and crowned his head with flowers. No easier, nor no quicker, past the impracticable hours. That's the mood of a century, caught in a stanza of a poem. All right, that's Matthew Arnold. Now then, another one from the Roman poet Catullus, and this, I believe, is found in the catacombs on a, um, doesn't say so here, but I have heard a man lecture on the catacombs and tell how many of the catacombs, these tunnels under Rome, had pagan burials. Incidentally, uh, under St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, when they were looking for the bones of St. Peter, they uncovered pagan burials under there from pre-Christian days. And the type of inscription and monument is <clears throat> vastly different from that found on the Christian burials from a little later. 
But some of these pagan burials had this quote from the Roman poet Catullus. Uh, he gives it here in English. Suns may rise and set again, but for us, eternal night <coughs> remains for sleeping. And if you want it in Latin, said nobis nox una longa dormienda est. For us, one long night remains to be slept. You see, without hope of a life to come, death without hope, this brings pessimism and despair. And um, here's another one, fruitless words on dust which cannot answer. He sobs over his brother's grave. All right, uh, that's Catullus. Then there's one here from Cicero. His daughter died, and he grieved over this. And uh, Sulpicius, a friend, sends consolation. And you notice, uh, well, what would you call this? Cold comfort? Top of 157. <clears throat> I don't want to run over time, but here he says, is a little thing which may comfort you. On my way back from Asia, I traveled by sea between Aegina and Megara, and I began to look at the regions round about. Behind was Aegina, Megara was in front. On the right was Piraeus, on the left Corinth. Towns once in the glory of their strength, which now are broken before our eyes. This is how my thoughts began to run. Ah, we little men are hurt if one of ours should die. Yet the wonder is, we live so long, when in one place the corpses of so many cities lie. Provinces, my friend Cicero, are being shaken. Why in such a day be so moved if you have become the poorer by the frail spirit of one poor girl? Mr. Harris, would you call that comfort? That's pretty poor compared to what we Christians have, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, this is the best the, uh, let's say, a non-Christian Roman world had to offer. Now, uh, here's one here from Hadrian, the emperor um, who put his wall across Britain and similar to this. Now then, um, the inscriptions of the Christian graves in the catacombs, and how do these show a different spirit from the pagan spirit of the time? And this is, in my opinion, quite touching and moving to see the difference. And you realize many of these early Christians met a violent death. Some were thrown to the lions, some were burned and otherwise tortured to death. And um, the catacombs, while used occasionally for secret Christian worship, were chiefly galleries for burial. And these uh, tunnels underneath the city of Rome. And these show immediately a spirit of optimism and faith and peace and rest. And Blake, I'll give some samples of this on page 158. Here lies Opia. She needs little room. Opia who sleeps in peace, as the inscription puts it, for she is but a handful of bones whose fragments perhaps tell how she died. After the lions and tigers had eaten these people, the Christians would go out and collect up what bones they could that were left. And these they would bury. And the Roman authorities did not pursue them into the catacombs. This was supposed to be a sacred matter of burial after you're dead, and they were allowed to do this in peace. Hard by a marble slab records the fact that Eutychia, happiest of women, lies beneath. 
a locket with her body depicts Christ bearing the fruit of the tree of life. Above is cut the outline of a sweet, strong face. In strangest paradox, the corridors of death contained all that was truly living of ancient Rome. In the simple art and wall inscriptions is the warmth of hope and faith. Pagan Rome above was in the Indian summer of her imperial strength, just near the end. Storm was brewing the vast hinterlands of the twin continents, and all which the Caesars had built and fought for was to pass in ruin. All that had been worthwhile in Rome's great story was to be preserved for another age by those who bore their martyred dead to burial in the dark tangle of the catacombs. Now, these catacombs, you should realize certain basic facts about them. In the first place, the rock under Rome is very soft, called tufa. This is a rock which, uh, before it's exposed to outside air, is easily uh, cut and easily uh, dug into. And this is one reason why they could have these extensive tunnels under the city. These were used chiefly as cemeteries and in pre-Christian times, later in Christian times. And um, how many miles of them are there estimated to be? Realize they've never yet been fully explored. How many, Mr. James, how many miles are supposed to be? Well, he says here, I believe the middle of page 159, reliable calculations suggest the vast tangle of the catacombs contains up to 600 miles of galleries. Now, that's tremendous, 600 miles underneath and just in the immediate vicinity of this one city. The place is honeycombed with them under, underground, you see. The lowest estimate of the graves they contain is 1,750,000. That's the lowest estimate that anybody has given. An admissible probability is something like 4 million. This is obviously a question which could, with a will to do so, be settled quite conclusively. Somebody go in there and stick to it, they could count them and find out how many there were. Uh, but it hasn't been done. Ten generations of Christians are buried in the catacombs, so that on the second figure we have a Christian population in and about Rome of 400,000 for one generation. Probably the population of Rome at that time was greater than the population of the city of Rome at the present day, and the number of Christians was terrific. Now, such averaging is, is not good statistical method, but he takes the figure 175,000 as a middle point between extreme statements here. All right, um, Gibbon guessed that it was one-twentieth the population of Rome, and Blakelock holds that it is more likely that the population of Rome was one million and the number of Christians buried there would be not one-twentieth, but one-fifth of the people of Rome during the time when they lived there. One-fifth. Now then, uh, we will stop at that point and pick it up on Friday. <laughs>